Are you ready to up-level your performance, become a better sales coach, and grow revenue? Are you ready to be ready? Then ready, set, sell. I'm Hannah, a B2B sales enthusiast and sales consultant, advocating for sales to be a little more human. And I'm Tony from MindTickle, where I'm a sales leader and coach. And you're listening to Ready, Set, Sell, a podcast dedicated to helping revenue and sales professionals like you adopt a sales readiness approach to ensure your team is always ready to win. In each episode, we share smart insights, tangible advice, and actionable tips that can be applied directly to the work you do every day to drive organizational growth. Let's dive into the episode. For a business to be effective, all teams need to work synergistically together and avoid operating in silos. But there are two specific teams that need to work together now more than ever, sales and marketing. Absolutely. And I think to optimize outcomes and meet or exceed sales targets, sales and marketing teams need to be in constant communication and strongly aligned on their end goals. Aligning on desired outcomes, strategies, and tactics is key to success in today's constantly shifting landscape. And today's guest, who I happen to know, has an intimate awareness of the need for alignment between sales and marketing teams. And I know him too. Chris Lynch is the CMO of MindTickle, and he's here today to discuss how sales and marketing teams can come together to reach targets and optimize outcomes. So thanks for listening, and Chris, welcome to the show. So we really wanted to start by understanding a bit more about your career background so far, but really more specifically, the things that have happened in your career that really helped you like level up, that were like a catalyst for change. Yeah, so I've been a chief marketing officer for about six years now, and I still like to call myself a product marketer in a CMO shoes. But that was really never part of the plan initially. Uh, Way back when I wanted to be a journalist, way before I got into sales and marketing. So if you had asked me back when I was 22, if this is what I'd be doing, um, I'm not sure what I would have said if I'd said, oh, you're gonna be an executive of a high growth tech company. So, you know, I think that, you know, just from a background standpoint, I, I got my start in journalism and, uh, was working for a company called IDG, uh, International Data Group. And it was a really great experience because I just started covering tech companies and started asking lots of questions from, you know, at the time, a kid who had never really worked in business. So a lot of what I was doing was just sort of learning by observation. And IDG let me at the time move out to San Francisco because at the time there were these more novel companies coming out, companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And I ended up um, sort of falling into business through happenstance. Um, I started covering those companies and was really sure actually, I remember that I wanted to do PR. I was really sure I wanted to work at Google. And I remember going to interview there. I interviewed with eight people and I found out that seven out of the eight of them liked me, but one was a hard no. But it ended up being this really serendipitous moment because I was driving around in the valley that day and I went and met up with a contact, a guy named Ross Mayfield. And uh, he said, hey, look, like, I think you'd really have a bright future here. And what was cool about it was it wasn't necessarily great for the company, but it was great for me. Social Text was one of those cautionary tales of being super early to a market, your funding, is kind of starting to draw down as everyone else's is sort of ramping up, even though you had the idea. 
a few years earlier. But for a kid who was like 24, it was an incredible opportunity because I got to work in sort of all facets of marketing because we were a lean team where you had to do a lot. Most importantly, and what kind of set the pace for my career moving forward was that there were two groups that I really enjoyed sitting in the middle of. So my cube that I was sitting at was right next to the bullpen for sales. So I was listening to them every single day pitch companies and you'd listen to some of them just loop pretty much the same narrative as they're cold calling and doing the outreach. And I could tell even without being able to hear other people on the other side of the phone, what was going to be successful and what wasn't. So I talked a lot with them. And then I also spent this other part of my day with the product and engineers. And I sort of applied my skills that I had had as a journalist of saying, hey, explain to me what you're working on. What are you doing? And then I would sort of put that into plain English into our marketing material. So lo and behold, that kind of got my career off on a track of product marketing that ended up being sort of where I ended up landing in the marketing function. I love the fact that you heard so many conversations that you could start to tell what was actually happening, like based on just hearing that over and over again. What would you, what really brought you from, you know, Northeastern to, you know, you mentioned some great stuff in your background there, but you're from Northeastern into, yeah, sales is absolutely where I want to be and, you know, marketing and bringing all that together. Can you, can you go a little bit further on that and tell us a little bit more how you, how you really got there and what brought you there? There was two, I guess, answers to that. The the more pragmatic one is I was probably just going to go broke living in San Francisco as a journalist. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had a lot of fun in those years. You know, it's so weird. You you go back when you you want for certain things, but you look back on that time and said, yeah, I still ended up having a ton of fun um, during that time. And then then you actually get all those things later in life and life becomes complicated for all the different reasons. You tend to have a lot more fun when you're broke, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it really was about, I looked at sales and marketing as another opportunity for storytelling, but doing so in a way where I felt the challenge of persuading people was even harder because they know you're trying to sell them something. There was an inherent challenge to the idea of walking into a room and convincing someone that I could really fundamentally shift their business and kind of push them into a different stratosphere with what they were doing. Moreover, like once you sell and provided you're working on a product you believe in and you see that come to fruition, for me, that was a really cool sensation to see that early on in my career. I also thought that being sort of at that cross section where you have like the the product and engineering on one side of the house and then you have all the external go to market functions on the other having that context to understand both audiences and help sort of triangulate some of the different types of considerations that people have in a growing business that was really fun for me. I just was started to enjoy it. So I think originally it started out of some basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then, you know, as you start climbing up the pyramid a little bit, some of the work just became more intellectually interesting to me. I love that you mentioned the hierarchy of needs because I'm thinking, okay, so you've been at MindTickle for, is it approaching a year now? Almost a year. Yeah. It's gone by quick. Uh, Yeah, it, it, it has. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder where he is now on that pyramid, but that may not be the place to, to talk about it. But I'd love you to, to, to go into some detail about how you um, landed the role at MindTickle and, and really what drew you to the company and did you have a giggle when you first heard the name? 
I didn't have a giggle when I first heard the name because at this point with tech companies, I feel like I've seen everything at a certain point. <laughs> so I feel like my progression to MindTickle started actually back when I was at Oracle. I ran uh, global product marketing for the marketing cloud business unit. You know, they were pulling in companies like Eloqua, Responsus, all these different players in the marketing space. They were pulling it all together. And there, my job was really to be the chief storyteller. It was figuring out, even ahead of product and engineering, being able to integrate all those products together into one offering. How do you at least make it sound like a cohesive thing? So. I did that, and then I became a CMO of a company called Cision, uh, which is in the PR software market. Similar deal. They had been acquiring companies like PR Newswire, um, a slew of different software providers that focus on PR professionals. And again, it was how do you pull all of these things together into a cohesive story? With MindTickle, there were really two things that drew me. One was at MindTickle, we also have a very comprehensive product that in many ways, depending on the eye of the beholder of who's looking at the market, kind of spans a number of different sub-markets in the rev tech space. But really what drew me to the company, because I was lucky enough to have some different options, was that I've lived this problem before that MindTickle's trying to solve. You know, you have obviously a very diverse background. You've said some great things about the companies that you've worked at. What would you say, though, are some of the qualities that you think you have that have really contributed to bringing you to where you are right now? Um, I, I think I have some ideas. I'm sure Hannah does as well. But it's always interesting to hear how someone thinks about themselves and their own qualities. Yeah, always a tough one. But if I were to sum it up for me, I think it would be in a few key areas. One is that I'm honest and direct. But I think marketers spend too much time using their positioning and messaging skills internally. Um, and what I would say is that save that for when you're out in the market competing. <laughs> uh, leave it all out in the field when you're in the market and, and do the best job you can to position effectively. But I think internally, particularly when you're dealing with sales, it's really important to be honest and direct, be truthful for where you are with your performance and the numbers, where you're still gapped and where you're seeing challenges. Another key quality for me is that um, as much as I really do, I, I am consider myself a humble person. Um, I do feel like I'm on top of my game from like a storytelling perspective. I'm probably peaking at my ability to tell great stories and make compelling messaging. I feel like if you gave me any of our competitor products, I could probably, in a very short period of time, build a really compelling pitch from it, um, even more effective than what they might be doing. And that's and I, that's all respect to the CMOs and my competitors. Some of them have skills that I could never dream of having, and they're incredible at. But I think that uh, I know that I'm very good at that. I think the third thing I'd say is I'm always in it for the team and the company, and I. And I do feel like that's a little bit in this kind of data-driven modern world, plus with all coupled with all the individual empowerment that is so encouraged now in the business world. Like I'm a little bit of a company man, <laughs> to be honest. I don't apply for awards or <laughs> I don't need all that kind of extra stuff. For me, the biggest satisfaction is just seeing the company be successful. 
Just going back to the conversation we're having before you were talking about your, I guess, your core skill set and your superpowers. We're talking a little bit about positioning and, and working on a brand. What other things do you have in the pipeline that you're you're working on? And from a marketing perspective, and and what overarching goals are they actually helping to drive towards? I think there's a few things that we have going right now. I'm really thinking through what the next version of our digital experience looks like for our prospects and making that as compelling as possible. Tony's probably heard me mention this internally at like one of the town halls, but like, I feel like selling went through this phase of, you know, first there was the relationship sale, then there was the value sell. Uh, And you can really date yourself in the sales community based on kind of what you say you believe in a little bit. So it's like the value sell kind of worked its way like, even through the 90s where you, you know, kind of had the three martini lunch things. And then you had the early 2000s was all about the value sell. Like how much value are you, business value are you demonstrating to your customer? I feel like we've moved into the era of the insight sell where it's actually not enough to just sort of say, oh, like I can provide value for you. The, the odds are in a lot of these more mature markets, there are multiple companies that can provide more or less a similar value. I think it's more like, can you tell a prospect something interesting or something that they haven't thought of? So as I think about our marketing for that, um, for me, it kind of comes down to, can we provide experiences that helps our prospect deliver more insight inside of their companies? So we've been really advocating for this um, ideal rep profile concept, right? Um, All marketers have ideal customer profiles. Sales leaders should have an ideal rep profile. We're working through uh, basically a digital experience where people can come to our site, give us some interesting information about their organization, and then kind of turn back uh, at least a, a first introductory perspective on what their ideal rep profile could be. So we're really looking to make compelling content experiences that help prospects have that insight. So I think that's um, one key thing we're really focused on right now. I'd say the other thing is like a lot of marketing shops in B2B right now, I think we're working hard to sort of rationalize what the mechanics of an ideal funnel look like. I think the emergence of account-based marketing has you know, really created a fervor um, within the B2B marketing community for a while, because I, I feel like for the for a lot of folks, particularly those who had worked in the demand side of the house for a while, it ended up being this like interesting change of the goalpost. If you had been working in the demand and found the grind of just generating leads to be a bear, it's nice to just flip the script and change the narrative and say, oh, well, it's actually there's an addressable market of accounts here that we should go after. I think that for me, intent models and some of that stuff that the ABM providers have are are very interesting. They're nice guidelines as to like where you want to go in market. But I also think that, you know, look, staying very true to the persona you're trying to reach in market, understanding that you are still going to find some people, even with all the targeting we have, you're still going to have people who come to your site who we can really solve a problem for them. And I want to make sure that our system is flexible enough to accommodate for those different people. Uh, as they funnel through. So um, when I worked at Oracle, I would use the term adaptive. I want our marketing to be very adaptive. I want it to be able to um, cater to different types of people in the revenue function and make sure they're getting the experience that they want. 
Tony, the world of sales and marketing actually have a lot more in common than you might think. Yes, um, as Chris mentioned, I think you know both sales and marketing rely on excellent storytelling skills, but even more so in sales because you're really trying to convince someone to invest in something when they know it's your job to do so. I think that really underscores the importance of believing in whatever it is that you're selling. Because if your passion and enthusiasm for the product isn't genuine, people might sense that and be less inclined to go through the buyer journey with you. Yeah, and, and Chris is living proof of this relationship as he's been on both sides of the equation. I think it is so interesting that he started his career as a journalist and writer. He's put his skills to a good use as a marketer, learning to really tell the story of a brand and the products or services it's selling. So so let's hear more of Chris's insights from his unique CMO perspective. What would you say, you know, where you are right now, what are some of the current challenges that you're facing with your team, uh, you know, and your day-to-day -day role, starting from, you know, you, you're brand new in, in the middle of this pandemic and you change roles and, you know, a lot of it was not in person. You're doing a lot of things remotely. So what would you say some of the challenges are and, and how have you really tried to work through them? I'd say the biggest challenge in a company like ours, we are growing fast. We're we're growing um, at a rate probably that is is well above um, industry standard for a company like ours. But what it does mean for the marketers in seed is that your day is kind of this. You have to run this parallel work stream in your day, which is that on one hand, um, and it's and it's very similar to our partners in sales. It's like on one hand, we're being asked to hit our numbers, our pipeline goals, all the things that we need to do to contribute to the business. And then in parallel, um, it's like we need to kind of build this nice, beautiful house <laughs> that we want to be our dream home for years into the future. Uh, and what I mean by that, it's like it's things like building a new website, uh, elevating the brand, updating, and some of these infrastructure and or more glossy initiatives, they themselves are like a massive lift. And then on top of that, you're trying to manage the daily grind of the business. And so for me, the biggest challenge as a CMO, frankly, a lot of my day is sort of, I look at it through the prism of, should I be telling this person to focus a little bit more on the like immediate thing? Or do I have them kind of focus more on this, where we wanna be type of project? And there are consequences in both directions. It's like you you pull them off that, it may have a little bit of impact on some of your day-to-day -day metrics, but then you know when you don't start building the other thing, you're also creating debt for yourself at a different capacity. So I'd say like at a high level, that's our biggest challenge is like making sure that we're able to balance where we wanna go, but also kind of meet the daily demands of the business. Um, I'd also say on the in-person piece, what I've observed with marketing so far is that like a lot of functions, the pandemic laid bare some things that we don't need to do in person, right? So it's like a lot of things like around budgeting and even media mix planning and some of this other stuff that we do, like it's worked perfectly fine over Zoom. Um, there are two areas of, of my function that I think have been more constrained remotely. One is the creative aspect. There still is always going to be a part of marketing where the energy of being in a room with other people while you're brainstorming a campaign and whiteboarding and putting your computers and iPads and phones down and really all giving all your attention to each other to an idea. 
I miss that. And I'm looking forward to that coming back. And the second part I would say is, you know, the BDR or in some companies they call it SDR function that rolls up through marketing at MindTickle. And I think that's a function. And Hannah, I don't know in your experience, like if you would agree, but like I do think that's been a tougher function for for remote work in certain cases. Not to say that it can't be done effectively, but I think there's a real energy to that role when you have, you know, a number of BDRs or SDRs kind of sitting in proximity to each other. They're hitting the phones, email all together. They're getting a little bit of that verbal camaraderie and feedback, getting that direct kind of hands-on coaching. I think that you know, we've like every company, we've done our best to try to use the virtual tools available to us to to make that a thing. But I think that's another area where um, in-person interaction is super important, particularly if you look at the hiring profile of those types of reps, like where they are in their career. I think uh, in-person matters a lot there. That's where the virtual happy hours come in very handy, I think, because, uh, you know, <laughs> you yes. used to do them in person and now we have to do them virtual at least uh, yeah. for a little while longer. So maybe that's something, uh, you know, people can consider. Yeah. <laughs> Chris had a, an interesting point about um, trying to uh, kind of balance everything that's happening and the overarching things that you're working towards, but also trying to meet the demands of the business and and sales are a very demanding business unit <laughs> um, sales want things immediately right now and often justify it by it's an immediate need for a customer who if you just give me this one thing it's going to be millions right uh, so there's always that kind of uh, dollar value that's to adds to the urgency what um what does what does that alignment look like for you? What does that sales and marketing alignment like? What are the when you go into an organization, you know, it's it's approaching a year, you come in, you kind of get a lay, lay of the land. What are the sort of two or three go to things that you typically look at or try to work at fixing to create better alignment? So I think, number one, I like to look at the full spectrum of resources that are made available to sales. Um, so there's sort of the all boats rise stuff, i.e. that would be like your branding, just generally some of your demand programs that you're running and things you're doing to drive revenue for the business, to drive pipeline for the business. Um, so I like to look at the full spectrum of those things because if I do that, it helps me deal with the case by case stuff in a more thoughtful way. Um, and I think that one of the things that will probably always be the hallmark of any like B2B marketing org that I run is that we go heavy on product marketing investment out of the gate. So, you know, once I joined, not only did we build out sort of new messaging, we then, because we have all these sort of sub solutions in the sales readiness platform, we then built out discrete messaging for all of those as well. So we wanted to provide a tool set with which they could scale up or down appropriately. But first I look at the, like the whole spectrum. It's like, okay, what have we provided? And is that getting us, you know, 80% of what the sellers need in a lot of their deals and pretty much just work tirelessly till we get there? Because then relative to some of the one-off requests, it makes it a little easier because there's more back and forth that can also happen in that conversation. Well, have you used X, Y, and Z? Yes, I have. And I've used it and I I still am now at this point. Well, by the way, there's more morale on my team is a lot better once they've already been told that stuff they've worked really hard on already got utilized and we're still at a point where 
extra help is required. And I manage my team to um, frankly index heavily on supporting sales. Um, And what I do in my role is I look for patterns. If there's stuff where I feel like it's a pattern of this really was available and you just don't wanna, that's a different problem to solve for (laughs) than, you know, um, than there being a meaningful gap. And so, so number one, I think it's being very clear on the resources that have been made available. Two, I think on sales and marketing alignment, I feel like it's actually having a shared sense of failure. In other words, everyone likes to say that sales and marketing alignment is like a shared success and it's all about closing revenue. That would be like the more popular answer. But I like saying shared sense of failure because in my experience, way more transformational business decisions get made between marketing and sales by looking at your losses and looking at things that didn't go so well. Everywhere I've worked, there are win notices sent out over email. There are win notices sent out over Slack. We don't spend as much time sending out the loss notices and everything that um, went lost. Like we do win loss analysis as an example at MindSiggle, um, but that's less of a public thing for all the different reasons, because some of the stuff you get in those interviews is very candid and you gotta be thoughtful about making sure you're not um, accidentally dressing down someone for something they did or didn't do. But I do think that like having a shared sense of failure and looking at very reflectively across the board what could have been done better in all aspects of the value chain between marketing and sales is super important. And um, and the third piece I would say is I, I really think it's just important that both stakeholders manage their teams towards walking a mile in the other person's shoes a lot. And I, I don't feel like that happens enough. I think that one, I think it's important for marketing to empathize with sales that it is the ultimate what have you done for me lately profession. <laughs> and there's an, an incredible pressure to deliver, particularly in an environment like we're at, which is a high growth uh, business. Um, and I think, you know, marketers get prickly with the everyone's a marketer syndrome. Um, I always joke that like everyone thinks they're good at marketing. You know, you always hear these different ideas around like, oh, well, if you just did this or like another another big one for marketers is all the competitor envy stuff. Well, so-and-so did this. And like, it's it's super important to realize that, you know, what the other person is going through. And that really can be just an automatic good like compass going into any kind of interaction that you have between the two departments. I think sales needs to remember that marketing usually has some spectrum of resource it's working with and it's doing its best to deliver with that resource. And I think marketing also needs to remember that sales is dealing with the cold, hard, brutal realities of the market, which are always going to have some slight misalignment than the academic work that people like me do on addressable market exercises and persona work and all of this stuff. And I think marketers in particular, they they don't wanna hear it sometimes. Um, but I think that just like they get irritated with people saying that they know all about what should be good marketing, I, I think they need to be careful about not pre- presupposing that they know exactly always what great selling looks like. Um, and that's um, that's like kind of unnerving, frankly, like for the marketers that work for me. That they, sometimes it's unnerving for them to know that I feel that way, but um, that is how I feel. You know, being someone on the sales side, it, it's it's refreshing to hear that, right? Especially the alignment pieces, right? I think there's uh, within an organization, if you really do want to have a well-oiled machine, you do have to have that alignment between both sales and marketing. What do you think really are the key responsibilities 
for marketing in the sales process versus what sales might necessarily need or think they might need to do? I think the primary responsibility of marketing is to identify the addressable market, have a really cohesive strategy from a targeting perspective, from a content perspective, uh, from an experience perspective of how to go and reach that target in market. And frankly, place some bets on what you think the majority of those people are missing in their current um, roles and actually need to see addressed in what they're doing. So I think that's very much on marketing's purview. I think there's all the classical stuff that has been written about to death, which is all true, right? That, you know, more of the buying decision happens before anyone ever talks to a salesperson. I think that's all true. But I also feel that it's important for marketing to bring some point of view to those interactions. It's not just enough to say, well, we think this target will be interested in sales coaching. So we'll, we'll develop a white paper and a webinar around sales coaching. Like you can do anything to generate keywords and get the machines to notice you in some way. But I think that it, it is on marketing to also come with a unique point of view that they are seeding in the mind of that prospect. So that way, sales's goal really is to get in there and take that seed that's been planted and start getting really prescriptive about the strategy and what would be involved in bringing that to life at a company. Um, so for me, that's sort of where the the division of labor is. Marketing is like sort it's like that inception of sort of planting the idea. <laughs> and then it's the seller's job to sort of bring it to life, start getting into all of the nuance that exists inside of these companies if we're talking about B2B, which we are, right? Like I think that one thing that is important for sales to remember is like when marketing is building these strategies, there is a point where they just have to plan for the what works most of the time as our conversation here, because they're trying to reach a more mass audience, even with all the data tools and the targeting and personalization and all this stuff. If people are being completely honest with you, there's still some level of malleability that you have to have in some of your messaging if you want to reach some of these audiences. So then it's really on sales to kind of take it that level deeper that is really going to make the the value and the insight, like I use, use that word, super clear in the mind of the buyer. That's sort of how I look at the breakdown. So, so Chris, we've spent some time, um, you know, talking about your history, really understanding your superpowers um, and, and more importantly, looking closely when it comes to inside the business, how you can start to create uh, alignment between sales and marketing. Now, I'd really love to get your perspective um, on, on one of the things that you're excited about when it comes to technology, the things, the, the, the different things that are happening in the world that are going to drive and revolutionize marketing and sales over the next two to five years. I think one of the greatest things that is going to revolutionize the B2B marketing industry is the revenue technology and the sales technology stack catching up and chief revenue officers, chief sales officers, whatever senior sales title you can imagine is going to start leaning harder into a more digitally focused way of doing business. 
I feel that revenue technology is in a similar space right now where you have sort of this smattering of different providers that are solving the sales productivity and performance challenge from different angles. Um, but we're going to see more consolidation of that functionality coming together. But I also think that that's going to be an extraordinary thing for marketing. As more of the sales process kind of comes out of the shadows and gets brought into the digital realm, I think that's going to put more context behind the data that we've sorely been missing for a long time. That's the revolution that's going to happen is revenue technology is going to catch up. And the last point I just make is CMOs, you know, coming into the 2000s, you know, they always wanted to just hang their hat on the next brand campaign, the next tagline. That's going to be my thing. And then they realized that like, oh, actually, I have to be potentially the most digitally first organization. And what did we see? We saw all this spend that was going towards CIOs start to move over to CMOs. I think the same thing is happening with the chief revenue officers. I think what's happening is they're realizing that, you know, just relying on sales ops and or IT to manage all my technology is probably not good enough. And I think that that is going to be a massive change that you see in that leadership role and change is that they're going to have to start leaning into this stuff in a way that CMOs did 10 years ago. So, Chris, this has been a, a great conversation. We learned a lot. I think what we want to do is we're going to put your CMO superpowers to work one last time. We're going to go through a, a very quick rapid fire round of questions. So you're going to have to put those, sharpen those skills real quick. We're going to give you a couple questions. Hanno's going to go first, then I'll pop in. We're going to do these real fast as we go through them, but we'll have some fun with it. And uh, Hanno, go ahead and kick it off. Okay, so what's the best piece of advice you've been given in your career? I worked with a gentleman named Chandar Padabiram. He's now the CMO of Koopa Software. Uh, before that, he was CMO of Marketo, so not exactly a lightweight. And he said, we are always going to perceive ourselves in a slightly different way than everyone else perceives us. The best you can do is minimize the number of clicks you are away. What would you say is your top productivity hack? You got to wake up early. I, I, I can certainly say that as a CMO. Like if you don't, if you don't utilize the hours of 6.30, 6 to 6.30 to 9.30 a.m. effectively, I don't see how you get through your day. Uh, top prediction for the sales industry this year? I think more noise and more consolidation. Hmm. If you could share a piece of advice to all marketers, what would that be? My advice would be make sure to remember that your ideas matter. It's not simply enough to message value. You need to message insight. Where do you go to get your industry news? A little bit of everywhere. Um, I'm maybe just because I'm a little bit of a sentimentalist for some of my early days in the Valley, I still read TechCrunch <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and uh, I... Um, also read a lot of the digital stuff on the Wall Street Journal. Um, and and then generally just sort of a smattering, like I, I set up the feeds where I, I'm watching specific companies and then I'm sort of kind of plugging through and looking at the different news outlets that, that are covering them. Um, 
So those are primary for me. And then I get all my regular news primarily from the New York Times. Okay. So in the theme of reading, what book has inspired you the most in your career? Malcolm Gladwell's Blink has still stuck with me all these years later. I'm sure there's a lot in that book now that has probably been refuted as pseudoscience in a number of different constructs. But I think that um, I think through so much in my life around sort of like initial impressions and reactions to things and how much that shapes you and how much it shapes a lot of your business relationships. And so, I mean, that book is probably 20 years old now. But that one has stuck with me this whole time. So I'm going to throw one last question in. We're going to go from books to movies since you brought movies up earlier. And this is a question we had asked a previous guest on the podcast. But which term would you use? Always be closing or sell me this pen? Sell me this pen. That is the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, thanks so much for your time here on the podcast today. It was a pleasure for Hannah and I to have you on. And we're looking forward to seeing what you do at MindTickle. Thank you. Thank you both. So, Hannah, I've had more positions than I care to reveal over the course of my career, but I've worked with a number of different marketing people, some good, some not as good, but I think there's been a a bunch that I've worked with that have done an excellent job in really setting up and driving awareness. Um, I've been at some companies that were very much early on in the beginning of their fields where you were doing a lot of evangelizing, right? Having to go out and really make sure that people uh, really get a first understanding of what the product is or what the solution is that we were delivering. So I think the best marketers that I've worked with have really done a phenomenal job of really getting uh, getting the name out there and the brand out there and making sure that the, the, the customers had a good sense of what it is that we could do, but more importantly, the value that we could provide. Does that, does that ring true to what you've experienced with any of the marketing teams you've worked with? Yeah, I, I'm with you completely. There, there, I've worked, I, again, I've had many roles in my, uh, in, over my sales career. Um, and I have definitely been part of organizations where marketing, put it this way, I, I, I haven't known what they're doing. I, I just don't know. I'm like, man, like, are you, are you here? Do you still work here? What are you working on? And that, that has worried me. And I've been in situations as a salesperson where I've been like, if I say something, am I going to get in trouble? Because I, I haven't heard from marketing. I, I don't know what they're doing. I, I'm confused. So I've just... They're yeah. developing tchotchkes is what they're doing. They're getting <laughs> nice pens and shirts and things like that, I think. I'm like, huh? However, I've also been um, in environments where it's both small and large organizations where marketing... They are all over you. They're like, here's a campaign. This is what we're doing. Here's the script. Here's a value prop. Present it to us. Walk us through a demonstration. Here's what you should be talking about. Here's the campaign that's going out. Here's the dates. We're going to send you a list of people who have opened the email, clicked on the email. We're going to show you all of their web activity. And you're like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. So you've got people, marketing people who, uh, I think there's two distinctions. You've got marketing people, and I'm definitely going to lose followers (laughs) when I finish talking about this. But you're going to have some marketers who are like, my job is to make money for the company. That's it. And you're going to have other marketers who are saying, I am here to drive leads. 
and I think there's a there's just a really fine line and when you're not when the whole business uh, the, that that org that revenue org isn't thinking about numbers that's where I see things start to break down because you, you're, you're thinking you're doing a great job but there's no numbers so um that's my two pencil cents yeah and the, and the thing is you don't need a huge marketing team in order to have success Right. I've been at some smaller organizations that just had phenomenal people that were very crisp in their messaging. They were very precise and knew how to target the right people at the right time with the right information. Right. And that's why sales and marketing are so intertwined. Right. Because the, the outcomes and goals that they're looking for aren't really that dissimilar. Uh, it's just really a slightly different approach in what they're looking to do. So to me, the, the most or the best people I've really worked with were the ones that were really smart in the way they thought about things and could execute at, at a higher level to really drive, you know, to drive that, uh, that retention, that information level that people are really looking for. You know, Hannah, I'm a movie guy, as you know, so telling a good story is always very important. But in sales, telling a good story about your brand relies on having a strong belief in the company's overall vision and mission. I agree with Chris that to optimize sales outcomes and effectiveness, sales and marketing each need to build a team full of passionate people who can really get behind the product. I mean, Chris even emphasized the importance of being truthful and direct as marketers, um, especially when working directly with the sales team. Exactly. And we all appreciate honesty when working with others, but if you really want to get in a salesperson's good books, it's important to be upfront about overall performance and any challenges you may be dealing with. There's a way to get into a salesperson's good books? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> But, but but honestly, remaining adaptable and flexible to change is really essential, especially in today's rapidly evolving world. Exactly. Being able to help your customers solve problems as they crop up will help you build relationships founded on trust, credibility, and a problem-solving attitude. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ready, Set, Sell. We hope you took away some valuable lessons and insights that inspire you to reevaluate your approach to sales readiness. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show when you get a minute. And stay tuned for the next episode of Ready, Set, Sell.